Welcome to the Breakfast Leadership Show, where we interview global thought leaders on business, leadership, and life. Here's your host, keynote speaker, best-selling author, and chief burnout officer of the Breakfast Leadership Network, Michael Levitt. Welcome back. I've got Andrea Wilson-Woods on the line. Andrea, how are you? I'm good. Thank you. Great to have you here. In the pre-show, we were talking about all kinds of different things we could talk about, and um, we're in the middle of a pandemic at the time of this recording. So we had talked about you know, loss and, and grief, and I know that's something we want to dive in in your backstory a bit beforehand but ultimately you know when we will get to the point of with COVID-19 and, and some of the losses and, and the grief that people are facing right now so share with the audience uh, your backstory and, and the work that you do. Um, sure so when I was 22 years old I was living in Los Angeles I had graduated from college and I was trying to figure things out <laughs> like most people I think and I ended up getting custody of my then eight-year-old sister, Adrian, and I became her legal guardian, and I was her only parent, and I raised her all through my 20s until a month after her 15th birthday, she was diagnosed with stage four liver cancer, and it, it was really shocking. I mean, she was a very active kid. She had no symptoms until the day she felt pain, which was the day an ER doctor told us what he saw on her CAT scan, and that was day one of her very short 107-day cancer journey, and um, she died a few months after my 29th birthday, and it just changed the course of my life because she she was everything to me. And so about a year later, um, after I turned 30, I started a nonprofit dedicated to primary liver cancer, and I like to tell people that um, when they asked my advice on this, you know, I did not want to start a nonprofit. It was not like in my dreams when I was a little girl, I want to start a charity. Um, it's just at that time, there was not a single organization in the U.S. doing anything about her particular type of cancer. And that's the only reason I started one. Um, so I'm grateful I did. And um, I've been doing that over 17 years. And then less than two years ago, I actually started um, a health tech startup. It's a for-profit. It's for um, all cancer patients and caregivers. Um, and then I also published a book uh, last fall, which is about raising and losing my sister to liver cancer. And it's called Better Off Bald. That's amazing work you do. And, and I agree. You know, when we're little kids, we don't tend to think, well, I'm going to run a nonprofit. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, firefighters or police officers or, or, you know, leaders of businesses or, you know, race car drivers or princesses or <laughs> all, all, all options are on there. I don't recall you know, running a nonprofit as being on my original list. I no, it wasn't. <laughs> I, I, did, I did run a few nonprofit organizations for a little over a decade. So I, I now that I, I don't, I, I can't say that I, I miss some elements of it. I, I miss others, of course, but there are some aspects of it where I, I don't miss it at all. But uh, that's, that's another story for another day. So, <laughs> so, you, so you had all of those things happen and you, know, you had you know, thrust on you, okay, you're going to be a caregiver now. And then a very short window of time after that uh, unfortunate diagnosis. And, and when you go through something like that, you know, it, it, it 
for me, and when you know, I talk with people that have gone through something like this, is the shock of it all is so intense that it, you know, for some it says just makes them numb. It's like they're not, you know, they're still grieving. They hurt. They're in pain and they're sad. But it's just the shock of the the quickness of it all um, is is something that a lot of people, you know, has a long term effect on them. It's just the shock of how in the world did that just happen? What, what you know, and you like what hit me? That kind of thing. So, I'm sure you experienced something similar to that. And of course, you know, with working with people that have to deal with you know, that horrible, horrible disease. Uh, and I've lost many family members to cancer and a variety of different types too. And it's devastating for families and everything, but I'm sure that any of the people that you work with and all of that, um, that's got to be one of the biggest things they have to deal with is just the shock of, of, of hearing that news and, and trying to navigate through it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've, in addition to my sister, I've lost five other family members to five different kinds of cancer. And I, I agree. I mean, when you're in it, cancer forces you to live very much in the present and, you know, you're making decisions often on the fly and, you're just you're just in it, and you're constantly adapting to changes that often you have no control over. But then, after whether it's after you you survive cancer or after your loved one dies, you know that then you have to sort of go through all of those emotions. And um, you know there are the five stages of grief. And what's interesting is you know people think that they go in a certain order. No, they don't. You know, anger, depression, bargaining, um, acceptance. Um, Oh, in denial, right? I have accepted my sister's death for a long time, but the one stage of grief I had never experienced was anger because I didn't know who to be angry at. And I was really, you know, I didn't know. And there were plenty of other people who were angry on my behalf, so I didn't, ha- I didn't have to do that. Um, but a few years ago, I was watching this stupid TV show on Netflix, and it, the final episode was this girl walking across the stage in her high school graduation and then it faded to walking across the stage in her college graduation. And my sister loved school. She was an honor student, 4.0 GPA. She already knew where she wanted to go to college. I mean, she, she had all these plans. And for some reason in that moment, that hit me. And it was, I was angry. Like I was just furious. And, and the anger just to hit me more than 15 years later, it really shocked me. You know, I'll share a similar, different, but similar aspect as far as the anger component of of, of grief and, and all that is my backstory and why I, I work in burnout. I talk with people about burnout and how to prevent it and how to recover from it and all of that is because it came from my own story of my own burnout back in 2009, 2010. And heart attack, job loss, car repossession, home foreclosure all in a year. So a uh, great year. Uh, but at the end of the day, I reinvented myself and, you know, life is awesome for me now. Launched a business and, and doing great things. But with the COVID-19 situation, I had an anger element to me that when I started seeing all these people that were in these miles long lines to get a couple bags of groceries because they no longer had a job because of the pandemic and all of this stuff, I was angry and felt horrible for those people. And at first I'm like, why am I, I'm upset. You know, I tend to be somebody that's with empathy and I feel bad for people and struggles and all that, but I was angry by the situation, I'm like, why am I angry? But it, it recognized me that it triggered 
a past situation in my life. Now, thankfully, I'm not in anywhere near those types of circumstances now that I was back in 2009, but it still was one of those things where like, wow, wait a minute, I didn't deal with that. I thought I had dealt with that and realized that, quite frankly, I didn't. So it's very, very ironic in a way that you, you know, were basically, it brought back something, you know, just watching, you know, something on TV. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, grief's funny that way, right? I mean, I, I never um, tell anyone how to grieve. I think everyone grieves differently, um, and it doesn't have a it doesn't have a timetable. Um, and you can have flashbacks like you did from something that happened that just triggered you. Um, I mean, I, I miss my sister every day, and I think about her every day. I say prayer to her every night, and then that's that's my way of processing my grief. Yeah, it's, it's it's one of those things where everybody grieves differently. And you know, my lost my dad in March. You know, literally a couple of days oh, before the gosh. pandemic started, and had a whirlwind trip to get my mom um, out of you know to sell the house that they had for over a quarter century, move her in with my brother, and navigate and move all her belongings and all that kind of stuff over a couple week period. And then, of course, you know, the pandemic hit, and that was a surreal experiencing flying back home um, on my flights. But, you know, even, you know, the grieving part of all that, there was a period of like, okay, we have to do a bunch of things in order to get mom in a safe spot. We know a pandemic's coming. Let's get her out of a state that rhymes with Florida um, that has a real issue with the pandemic. She's in her seventies and has several health issues. So the last person you want to get uh, COVID-19 because it would probably take her life. Uh, So we've, we've had her sequestered and quarantined for, for months now, but just going through that experience and being so busy, it didn't take the time necessarily to, grieve my dad in the way that I thought that I would. And for me, it's, it's moments here and there. Um, and most of the time it's just a thought and something comes up and thankful for it. And I'll reflect on other times, like you said, it it hits you out of the blue and you're like, where did that come from? So I agree with you. There's no timetable on it. And it's not like I say, okay, we're going to sit down and we're going to grieve for the next right. Doesn't it work that way? Yeah. And we're going to get this and we're going to check this off on the on the, the project list and then we'll move on with our life. No, it, it doesn't. And, and and I'm glad that it doesn't because uh, for some people, I say, we just need to, you know, I, that's the worst thing I've ever heard of somebody. It's like, well, you know, they, you think they'd be over it by now. I'm like, oh. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm not a physical person, but I, 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 I almost become one. And those kind of things, like, no, you can't say that to somebody. It, you no, you, know, you can't. You don't yeah. know their situation, and everyone's experience is unique. And what you know, their, you know, the losses that they've grieved are, are are crucial. And I want to segue a little bit into you know what's going on again with the pandemic and how people are really having a difficult time with this and it's more so than being frustrated that they can't go to the movie theaters or go into a restaurant to eat there's something deeper to that so i'd love to hear your thoughts on uh what your observations are with with this pandemic and how how people are are dealing with grief and and loss well i won't go too down far down the rabbit hole (laughs) um except to say i I think the the covid19 i can only speak to what's going on in the u.s um is probably the best marketing job I've ever seen in my life, but um, 
it's put cancer patients, um, and, and those are the people that I advocate for and fight for, it's put them at extreme risk um, because so many of them are not getting the treatments they need or not getting the screenings they need. And and so that's my biggest, single biggest frustration. But, um, but also just for the people who know they are at risk or they are patients going through treatment and their immune system is compromised, I've seen a lot of isolation um, be, because that's what they were told to do. Uh, and um, and it came up in a, a coaching call with some combination of patients and survivors, but they all felt like, rightfully so, that they were definitely more at risk than the average person. And they were not letting anybody come into their home. I mean, no one. And you know, and not going, not going outside, like we talked about before the call, like not even seeing the sun. And we talked about that there are actual steps you can take to allow people to come into your home and see you. And because you can control that environment, you can control your home environment. And I just shared with them what I did when I was raising my sister and she had cancer. We didn't isolate her. I mean, we certainly didn't go to the movie theater, to your point, when her immune system was down, that's the worst place to be. But I didn't stop people from coming to see her either. We just had this very simple three-step sort of process, <laughs> sanitation process, if you will, but very simple. And, she, you know, I allowed her friends to come see her as long as she was, you know, um, rested enough. And my sister, the entire time she was sick, she got one cold. That was it. Um, so, again, you don't have to totally isolate yourself and, and you should still connect with people. I mean, we're humans. We like spending time with other people. Yeah, one of the things we've seen in Toronto, where I'm based at right now, uh, with long-term care retirement homes is when the pandemic hit, you know, they went completely 100% on lockdown. They wouldn't allow <laughs> any visitors. And one of the sad things that we've seen in, in many cases is some of these loved ones and cancer patients and people that were ill in hospice and other places you know, passed away without their loved ones being able to be there. And that is, it, it's such a, and I'm torn by it. I understand the reasoning why they wanted to protect the other people in those facilities. But on the other side, it, it's, it, it's a lost opportunity where people didn't get an opportunity to say goodbye or be with someone in their last moments when they were physically in the same area. I can get it if you were another part of the world, another part of the country, and you couldn't get there in time uh, to be with somebody. But when you're literally in the same town and it would take you five minutes to get there and they wouldn't allow you to, to come in, especially those last moments, it, it, it's, it's tragic. And, it's horrible. It's yeah, horrible. And it's like, there. it's like, um, there's this thing called hazmat suits. Yeah. They've, they've been around a while. Yeah. You dress somebody up in a hazmat suit. They're completely enclosed. They, there's nothing on it. If you want to spray them with something great, let them go in. You know, they're wearing a glove. They're holding a hand. They're not exposing a single individual in there. And that wasn't given an option. And it's it just and, – and I have to give a lot of these – entities and decision makers some grace because this is all a new thing for everybody. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of documentation on the last pandemic that we faced in the world. So hopefully for the next one, um, someone's taking notes somewhere and we can <laughs> right. 
<laughs> uh, what will probably happen is they'll all save them in a PDF file, and then 100 years from now, no one will be able to open up PDF files. So we're going to be in the same boat that we are now. So uh, like, well, we Wait, got uh, it. What kills me is people here, they wear a mask, they don't cover their nose, right? Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, great, good job. Or um, my favorite, I think, are the masks made of um, that are knitted. Mm -hmm. So it's like, hmm, you're wearing a knitted mask and there are holes all the way through, you know? And even cloth masks are are not actually the masks that we should all be wearing if we truly want to protect ourselves, you know? I guess it's better than nothing, but um, but I just laugh now when I go to the grocery store and like nobody is covering even their nose. Some people have their mask on their chin, you know. It, it's yeah. it's insane, and even I know Governor Cuomo of New York made a joke about the you know he had a mask and he put it down. He said, "This is a chin strap. This is a mask." We're not requiring chin straps. We're requiring masks. And yeah, I see it a lot too where people aren't quite wearing them correctly. I I know in in the city of Toronto, there was a bylaw that was passed that went into effect yesterday, actually, requiring masks in all indoor spaces, which makes a lot of sense. And thankfully, the numbers that we have had here are tremendously lower in comparison to similar size geographic areas in the United States, because we're Toronto's roughly around 7 million people. So our numbers are considerably lower than what you would see in similar size U.S. cities, but that doesn't mean that it won't spike. And I think being ahead of it and being, you know, ahead, and just being precautious and, and, and not going to places that you need to go. I mean, your, your experience that you had with your sister is, is a great point. And I think even though we're all trying to figure out how to do all of this stuff, you know, how you treat someone that is, you know, has a low immunity system because of cancer is an incredible playbook to follow for guidelines on things because you, know, you wouldn't go into places if your immune system is low. And that's exactly what this equivalent is. is uh, our immune systems, unfortunately, are not strong enough to uh, combat this particular virus at this moment in time. So you know, most, all- most of, I'm going to come back though. Most of us are absolutely fine. If we get this virus, most of us, yeah, will be fine. It really is a small percentage of the population who are more at risk, like, um, like, like, like your mom or, you know, patients going through, not just cancer patients, but anyone going through a treatment that's compromised their immune system. Um, but most people are fine, you know, many, and I mean, look at how many people had, had symptoms, didn't even know what it was. I mean, so I guess that's sort of my frustration is that, you know, I, I mean, in a, in a sort of ironic twist, um, I went to see my primary care physician about something, and I have bad lungs. I'm not a smoker, but I've always just had really bad lungs. I'm prone to bronchitis. I'm hoarse right now. And he did an x-ray, and he's, he said my lungs are the best he's ever seen them because I'm not traveling because I usually get sick when I travel. And, uh, and he, we both kind of laughed about it, but, you know, and, but I don't consider myself someone who's immune system is compromised, even though he would probably argue that I'm definitely susceptible, but I just know me. I get sick when I travel. If I'm not traveling, I'm probably fine. And so I, I just, most of us would be fine. We would. Yeah. And I mean, when you look at the numbers, even though the numbers that are presented seem alarming, when you look at the total global population of the planet, um, it's, it, it's, it's a low number. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm 
and I am definitely not trying to diminish the loss of life. Uh, I know personally a couple people through family members that have have passed away from this. And uh, but you know, again, it's one of those things where it's I, I, I think getting cooler heads to prevail and and look at this from a practical matter instead of a sensational matter, I think would go a long way in easing um, the anxiety of, you know, so many people that are just on edge right now. And they're, you know, they're, they're anxious, they're worried, they're, they're frustrated. They, they sense loss because they haven't been able to do the things that they love to do. So uh, in closing, when, there we agree, by the way, hundred <laughs> percent. It's very politicized here. Very. Yeah, yeah. It is across many places on the planet, and but yeah, I definitely know uh, back home in the states, um, there is uh, a lot of political discussion about it, which uh, is unfortunate. But that's the reality we're in right now. So, uh, in in closing, in, when someone and we alluded to this before, you know, there's no timetable for grief. But what are some things that people can do that can help them through the grieving process? not with a timetable, but just some things that they can do uh, to make it a bit easier for them to to go through the grief that we often face in a variety of different factors. I know for me that um, it, it helped to do things in my sister's memory. So my, my nonprofit aside, just doing things in her memory, a friend of mine had suggested, um, and this was not long after my sister died, to do a book drive in my sister's memory and my sister loved to read and to do it actually at the middle school she attended because um, she she'd only been one year at the high school but she went all three years at the same middle school and um, and I did that book drive twice a year at Christmas and on her birthday and I did that for about five years and I forget I mean it was over a thousand books that ended up being donated and every book um, had a special photo on the inside, you know, explaining where the donation came from and why. And that was really helpful for me. That meant a lot um, because I just wanted people to remember her and her legacy to live on. Um, but that may not work for everyone. I, I think maybe the most important thing is to make sure the people in your life are supportive. And what was very challenging for me was. I placed this expectation on myself that I had to be a certain kind of person because I was that person in my group of friends who was the connector, the leader, you know. And so for the first year after my sister's death, I kind of went through the whole year faking it and assuring people that I was okay. And after a year, that didn't work anymore and I was done. And so when I kind of let the grief take over and just let, like, let, me, let myself go through it, I lost a lot of friends. And, and now I've lost all my friends and there was only one friend friendship that I actually um, ended because I needed to, it was in my best interest. And that was a hard decision to make. Um, But all the friends I had around me, all the sort of aunts and uncles that um, of my sister, they were all there for her cancer journey. They were fantastic. I don't have anything bad to say about them because they were really there for her, but when I allowed myself to process grief, they weren't there for me anymore because they didn't like sad Andrea. That's what I call it. They didn't like, they didn't know how to deal with me when I was that way. And I found out later that behind my back, my friends called me the rock because that's what I was for them. You know, I was the rock. I was, I'm, I'm the person in a medical emergency that you want. (laughs) Um, And they didn't know what to do. 
when I wasn't the rock anymore. So make sure you have supportive people. That's crucial. Yeah, you find out when when things aren't going well for you, you know, who truly are there for you and, and who aren't. And, you know, during yeah. you know, my own, you know, year after my burnout and all those losses that I had mentioned, you know, I know who, who stuck around and who was around and I know who wasn't. And, yeah. And I, you know, it's, it's a personal boundary uh, of mine to, you know, have the people in my life that are supportive to me and I can be supportive of them. It, it goes both ways. And um, as difficult it is to, you know, cut those ties with people, especially when they're family <laughs> or close friends is, is not easy, but it's the right thing to do for your own self-care and your own uh, own, own personal wellness. So Andrew, I've loved our conversation today. Where can people find out more about you and this awesome work that you do? Um, let's see. They can uh, learn more about the book at betteroffbald.com. And um, if they would like a lifetime free membership to Cancer U, they can learn about Cancer U. It's for um, newly diagnosed cancer patients and caregivers. They can go to cancer.university. And when they apply in the drop-down menu, um, Am I correct that this is the Breakfast Leadership Podcast, correct? Last time I checked, yes. Okay, good. I set it up that way. <laughs> so when they apply, um, there's a little uh, little part at the very bottom that says, I have a coupon code. So if they just put in the coupon code, Breakfast Leadership, but all one word, all caps, then they will have a free lifetime membership to Cancer You. That is awesome. And I highly encourage people to to take advantage of that because I know um, cancer impacts every family somewhere, somewhere along the line. Someone is impacted by that. So having access to these awesome resources that you have available is crucial. And, and thank you for, uh, for making that offer uh, to our listeners because it means the world to them and to me. So thank you so much for your time today, Andrea. I really appreciated this conversation and, and love the work that you do. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Breakfast Leadership Show, part of the Breakfast Leadership Network. Visit breakfastleadership.com for tips on empowering your business and your life.